to Applied Foundations. This week, we are going to be starting our look at child development. And we just, we have a lot to go over this week, so I'll try to be as brief as I can. So what exactly is child development? Well, it's not just about growing taller or learning to tie your shoes. It's about the intricate relationship between our biology and our environment, which shapes who we become. Development exists in a few domains, uh, including physical, personal, social, and cognitive. Physical is all about the body's growth and maturation, like shedding baby teeth. Uh, Personal delves into the depths of identity and personality, figuring out who you are and where you fit in. Social explores how we relate to others, building friendships and navigating society, and cognitive, which is where we'll begin, refers to changes in thinking, reasoning, and decision making. Some changes, like our height or eye color, are pre-programmed by our genes, and these changes are considered maturation and occur naturally and spontaneously with little help from the outside world. But there are others, like learning to share or navigate complex emotions that rely heavily on experiences. We interact, we learn, we grow. For thinking and personality, psychologists are still wrestling with some of the crucial questions about how it all works. We're going to look at three debates in the field of psychology with different camps championing one side or the other, but the truth is always lies sort of somewhere in the middle. First, is it our genes or our environment that call the shots in development? What you've probably heard of as nature versus nurture. For centuries, it's been sort of an either-or game, but now we're realizing it's team effort. Genes set the foundation, experiences shape and mold you, and then you react to your surroundings accordingly. Rinse, repeat. The next issue is progress smooth and steady like climbing a ramp or more like a staircase with sudden leaps to new levels. Some say development is about gradual change. Others argue for dramatic transformation. So for example, Piaget, whose name you'll hear a lot and we'll get into more detail here in a few minutes, uh, believed in kids magically unlocking new thought powers like stairs. Boom, you're thinking differently. We'd call this discontinuous or qualitative development, but some learning theories prefer the ramp approach, focusing on gradual skill building. This is continuous or quantitative. Both have a point and maybe it's a little bit of both depending on what's changing. For example, puberty would be considered discontinuous, while language acquisition would be continuous. And finally, do we miss our chance on certain skills if we don't learn them early? According to the text, many earlier psychologists, particularly those influenced by Freud, believed that early childhood experiences were critical, especially for emotional and social and cognitive development. But not so fast. Psychologists now agree on what we call quote-unquote sensitive periods. I think open windows, not slam doors. There are times when we're particularly receptive to certain experiences like language and childhood, but even those windows have cracks and later life can offer learning opportunities too. There's even one learning theory called transformative learning that deals with the changing of firmly held beliefs well into adulthood. And these debates aren't just academic. They matter for how we raise kids, design education, and understand ourselves. So remember, development is fueled by genes, experiences, and timing in sometimes a messy, undefined way. Now, even though there is debate on development, we can rely on some general principles that most people agree with. First, people develop at different rates. Imagine a group of toddlers learning to walk. Some take tentative steps at nine months, others wobble around at 15 months. Both are perfectly normal. Development happens at different paces for everyone in all areas, like physical growth, thinking skills, and social interactions. Number two, that development is relatively orderly. Think of learning to read. Students grasp basic sounds before putting them together, then they form simple words before tackling complex sentences. That's the orderly part, mastering smaller skills before building on them. But it's not always a straight line. A kid might get stuck on a tricky word, take a break from reading, or even revisit previous sounds. The the key is progress, not perfection. 
Another thing to consider is that because development is orderly, it tends to occur around the same time, relatively speaking, for most people. There are certain things that a typical five-year-old is just physically, socially, or cognitively incapable of that an eight-year-old is. So if we try to teach the five-year-old something that they aren't ready for, no amount of expert instruction will make them ready. Number three, development takes place gradually. Remember learning how to ride a bike? It wasn't like instant zoom, you're a cyclist. It took wobbly starts, wobbly falls, maybe some scraped knees, but lots of practice. Development works the same way. We have to remember this with our students. When we're tackling a complex topic like essay writing or understanding fractions, we need to consider the smaller steps to mastery along the way and work our way through them. I mentioned continuous and discontinuous development earlier, and this principle doesn't mean all development is continuous. It just means discontinuous development is gradual. I used puberty as an example earlier, and while it's an example of discontinuous development, it takes years. And that's also a great example of the orderliness of development from the second principle. Puberty tends to take place around 11 to 14. It is generally in the same order for most kids. So another way to look at development is that it's predictable. We can also use the principles to determine if a child is experiencing atypical development. So if a child isn't progressing in a typical order or speed, that might be a sign that something is amiss. Though remembering principle one, this isn't always the case. So let's move on to the brain and how its structure aids in and is impacted by development. We're not going to go super in depth into the anatomy and function of the brain, but it is helpful to understand sort of the higher order parts and how they work together in development. Our brains are made up of neurons, you've probably heard of them, uh, which build connections through practice and shape memories. These are tiny messengers and are constantly forming and strengthening neural pathways we call synapses, which makes learning possible throughout life. These synapses change throughout our lives and this ability to change and develop is called plasticity. So we know that the brain constantly reshapes itself based on experiences and this even applies to cultural differences. So for example, Chinese speakers use different brain areas for math tasks due to abacus use and engage spatial processing areas while reading because their written characters resemble pictures. So even when we mean English, they do this. This plasticity shows how learning shapes the brain, highlighting the importance of diverse experiences and activities in education. At birth, human brains are on overdrive. They've got billions of neurons and synapses that create an excess of potential connection. So in order to function properly, we need to sort of prune some of those neurons down, just like you would prune a tree. Two types of pruning take place. Experience expectant, where unused connections to specific senses wither away if appropriate stimulation isn't received. So think of a, a baby who is born deaf, rewiring those synapses for sight. Then we have experience dependent, where new connections form based on individual experiences, like learning to ride a bike. Stimulating environments can enhance this process, both in early life for expected experiences and later for individual learning. But overloading young brains with unnecessary extras can be counterproductive. Our brains have a maximum cognitive capacity, which we'll talk about in more detail in a few chapters. In order to protect these neurons and synapses, we rely on glial cells and myelination. Myelin is sort of like a coating over electrical wiring, but for our nerves. So if that sheath starts to degrade or doesn't form properly, both physical and cognitive processes can be impacted. If you've heard of multiple sclerosis, that's a disease where your body attacks the myelin sheath around nerve cells. As myelination continues throughout adolescence, our brains continue to grow. So we go through two phases of intense growth and myelination, myelination, uh, sorry, can't say that word, where our brains double in size. So that's the first year of life and around puberty. The cerebral cortex, a thin sheet folded within your skull, holds the key to human achievements like complex problem solving and language. This crucial area develops gradually and is the last part of the brain to develop, which may make it more susceptible to environmental impacts. Higher order thinking in the frontal lobe is simultaneously developing maturing well into the teenage years. Different areas of the cortex specialize in different tasks, but they don't work alone. 
communication and collaboration are key. So this flexibility is especially true in young brains with their higher levels of plasticity adapting to challenges like damage. While the left hemisphere often handles language and the right spatial skills, that line isn't rigid and both sides work together in most people. You know, you hear like left brain, right brain, that's not totally the case. We're going to quickly review how the brain develops through childhood and adolescence. So in infancy, babies, like I said, are exploding with connections. They learn by exploring and observing, and they need a stimulating environment like play over structured lessons. When we get to elementary school, the brain's network strengthens. This enables some memory, reflection, and language learning. Attention spans are still short, so keep lessons bite-sized. So in adolescence, the text says the brain functions with high horsepower and poor steering. Uh, kids this age have powerful emotions that sort of meet or go against developing judgment. Risk-taking is natural, but impulsive actions can be curved by connecting them to long-term consequences. So remember that the brain is doubling in size at this point. When I taught middle school, I like to say that my students had goo brains, and my colleagues and I joked that middle school was basically a holding area for kids until they were ready to re-enter society in high school. To keep them focused and interested, try to channel their passion into positive outlets like social causes or creative pursuits. Another thing to consider is sleep needs. Teenagers require nine hours of sleep, but late starting biological clocks clash with early school schedules, which is always an ongoing issue. I remember having to be in first period in high school around 7.15, but I'm glad to see this is changing. In Santa Rosa County, where I live, most school, high schools don't start until after nine. I would have loved that. Sleep deprivation hurts learning, so later school start times could be beneficial. It's also a good thing to remember if you teach upper elementary kids or older, kids sleeping in your class may not be irresponsible. They may be a victim of their literal biological clock. Uh, in the text on page 41, you'll find some common misconceptions about the brain and development, and I suggest you go through and review those. I also included them in the full slide deck, but they're pretty interesting. One thing to know about the brain is that instruction impacts development. Intensive training can help stroke victims and even children with brain surgery regain lost functions by building new neural pathways. There's some really interesting stories about kids who have had to have half of their brain removed due to epilepsy or other disorders, and their brains are able to rewire and make it as if they never had that happen. Effective reading instruction helps the brain build strong representations of vocabulary, which improves comprehension. Reading is not innate, and good reading instruction builds a neural foundation that can impact students for years to come. You know, in the last module, we talked about the importance of a good teacher, and it's literally on a neurological level. Stress and negative emotions hinder learning, while challenge and engagement boost it, so creating a supportive and motivating environment is crucial. Now we're going to switch gears and focus on two lions of educational psychology. You're going to hear these names a lot while you're in an education program. If you need to take a break, this is probably a good time to pause and come back. But um, anyway, they both come about, come about around the same time and ended up sort of being on the same side when we look at big picture learning theory. However, there are some intricacies when we dig down into their ideas. We'll start with Jean Piaget. He was born in Switzerland and he dedicated his life to understanding child development. He was fascinated by children's minds from his own youth, and he pioneered the theory of cognitive stages, hypothesizing how infants, children, and adolescents gradually build their understanding of the world through exploration, interaction, and reflection. His groundbreaking work redefined our understanding of learning and continues to impact education and child psychology to this day. Piaget believed children actively build their understanding of the world through interactions and experiences. 
he proposed four key stages of development. We have the sensory motor stage, which is where infants and toddlers learn through their senses and actions, grasping objects, experimenting with cause and effect. Pre-operational children, which is sort of lower elementary, develop imagination and language, but struggle with logic and conservation. For example, understanding a glass of water is still the same amount when poured into a different container. At the concrete operational stage, that's around upper elementary, children gain logical reasoning and conservation skills, mastering operations like addition and subtraction with tangible objects. We finish up with the formal operational stage. This is adolescence and older, and adolescents develop abstract thinking and can reason about hypothetical situations and possibilities using logic and problem solving beyond concrete examples. So each stage lays the foundation for the next, highlighting how children steadily refine their cognitive abilities and make sense of their world. Piaget's theory remains significant in understanding how children learn and how education can be tailored to their evolving cognitive capacities. Piaget also outlined some basic tendencies in teaching. Uh, first, we naturally combine and refine our thought patterns, so like infants learning to grasp and look at an object together. These organized systems are called schemes. We adjust or adapt our thinking to fit the world through two processes. We adjust or adapt our thinking to fit the world through two processes. Assimilation, which is fitting new experiences into existing schemes, so that's like a child calling a raccoon a kitty and accommodation or modifying existing schemes to create new ones when needed. So learning to recognize that a raccoon is a raccoon. We constantly use both assimilation and accommodation, modifying schemes without entirely abandoning them. We may ignore unfamiliar things like conversations in a foreign language if they don't fit our current focus or existing schemes. Combining all of these tendencies is like a mental balancing act. This is called equilibration or the act of trying to find balance. Basically, we use schemes to understand the world. If a scheme works, that's equilibrium and we're happy. If it doesn't, which is disequilibrium, we feel discomfort. This discomfort motivates us to adjust our thinking using assimilation and accommodation to restore balance. Too little or too much disequilibrium hinders learning. Just right is key. Now, remember, while theories are based in research, they aren't the end-all be-all rules, especially in a field that's so subjective like education. There are some limitations to Piaget's theory. As the text says, most psychologists agree with his insightful descriptions of how children think, but many disagree with his explanations of why thinking develops as it does. First, his idea of stages may have some issues. Children may master some tasks before others within a stage. Development may be gradual, not sudden leaps. During his initial research, Piaget's tasks also might have been too difficult for younger children. There are also some external factors he did not account for. Piaget didn't really account for culture. Ages for reaching stages vary across cultures due to different values and knowledge domains. Instruction can also impact development. Effective teaching can accelerate cognitive development. There's also some social context involved. Children use knowledge relevant to their environment, leading to different classifications. While Piaget proposed universal stages of cognitive development, today's psychologists recognize culture's profound influence. Children learn about the world through the content and processes emphasized in their cultures, like cooperation in some and competition in others. Lev Vygotsky, a key figure in socio sociocultural theory and the other big name in educational psychology that we're talking about today, argued that social interactions like language use actually shape our mental structures and thinking processes, internalizing shared activities into individual Cognition. We'll explore three themes in Vygotsky's work. Uh, how, first, how social interactions influence individual thinking, then the role of cultural tools like language and learning, and finally the concept of the zone of proximal development, showcasing how social processes guide learning and development. Vygotsky believed children's thinking skills bloom through social interaction. They first learn problem-solving, memory, and attention by collaborating with others like their parents, then internalize these skills to master them independently. It's like building blocks where social interaction 
lays the foundation for individual cognitive development. Children's higher order thinking, like problem solving and self-control, are first built through shared activities with others, so like parent-child play. These shared skills then become internalized and mastered by the child individually, making social interaction sort of the seedbed for cognitive growth. So Piaget believed that children learn through disequilibrium, which is when their beliefs or ideas are challenged in some way. This is why he thought peers were an important part of development. Vygotsky believed that children developed when they interacted with people with more advanced cognitive skills, like a parent or teacher. Vygotsky argued that cultural tools encompassing both technical tools like computers, mobile devices, and psychological tools like language and number systems play crucial roles in cognitive development. There is some controversy surrounding the use of technical tools like calculators and spell checkers in education. While technology is increasingly monitoring and assisting us, the impact on student learning is debated. Research suggests that calculators, rather than harming basic skills, have positive effects on problem-solving skills and math attitudes. However, there is a recommendation to encourage students to attempt problem-solving without calculators on simple math problems to support math fact learning. I mentioned this in week one, but I'm a huge proponent of technological tools. They are available, and we should know how to use them properly and ethically, as should our students. Vygotsky's theory on psychological tools emphasizes language as a crucial symbol system in a, what he called a quote-unquote cultural toolkit that children develop through social interactions, transforming and internalizing these tools to make sense of their world. Kids also create their own symbols and meanings as they get older. It may begin with something as simple as recognizing that when a parent grabs a certain toy or their coat, that means it's time to go outside, to literally creating their own language and symbol code systems. Another important part of language and cognitive development is the idea of private speech. Vygotsky sees children talking to themselves as a vital step towards self-regulation, not egocentrism, which is what Piaget believed. Vygotsky emphasizes language's role in self-regulation, so private speech moves from external control, which is adults guiding them, to internal control or silent inner speech. It peaks around age nine, and it helps with attention, problem solving, and self-control. And I don't know about y'all, but I still talk to myself, and you know, you think through things. So I like to knit, and I don't think I could do it well if I couldn't talk my way through it. My husband's a software engineer, and there's a, a great concept or trick um, in software development, where if a programmer is having trouble working out a difficult problem or algorithm, they should pretend to explain it to a real or imagined rubber duck. So if someone is having trouble, another programmer might say, did you explain it to the duck before they try to help? So we should always encourage private speech and allow private speech in our classrooms. Silence might hinder learning, especially for younger students. Vygotsky sees social interaction and language as key drivers of cognitive development, while Piaget focuses more on internal processes and disequilibrium. The last idea of Vygotsky's I want to mention is the zone of proximal development, or ZPD. You'll encounter this out in the world when looking at test scores and projected areas of achievement. We still use the term today. Vygotsky imagined a zone of proximal development between what a child can do alone and what they can achieve with help. Think of it as a sweet spot, tasks just beyond a child's independent skills, but achievable with guidance from adults or older peers. In this zone, the child stretches their skills, learning by collaborating and internalizing the helpful strategies used. It's like building blocks for higher thinking, where social interaction lays the foundation for individual cognitive growth. Think of it like taking up running. If you want to run a marathon, going out day one and trying all 26 miles is going to fail, and you're going to be miserable, and you're never going to want to do it again. But if you go just a little further each day, you'll get there eventually and have lots of small victories to celebrate along the way. Vygotsky believed this zone filled with shared activities and support fuels the child's journey toward independent mastery. So I want to talk about sort of how all of this comes together in learning and teaching. The support we give to students within the ZPD is called scaffolding, and this works with the zone and private speech to foster learning and cognitive development. So I'm going to give you an example. Think of a kid building a sandcastle. 
building a complex sandcastle with intricate towers and moats would be outside the child's independent ability. It's too hard, but a simple sandcastle with one tower is too easy. So the ZPD for this child lies somewhere in between. Scaffolding is that temporary support provided by an adult or more skilled peer. So in our hypothetical situation, the adult might show the child how to make smooth sand walls or pack the sand correctly, maybe even suggest adding a small moat. These are steps the child wouldn't know or would struggle with alone. As a child builds, they might narrate their actions, so like, they're okay, packing the sand tight. Um, Self-correct, like saying, oops, that tower's leaning, and brainstorm ideas, like, ooh, maybe some shells for decoration. This private speech helps them plan, monitor progress, and regulate their behavior. Now, how does all of this work together in the classroom? By introducing challenges just beyond the child's independent ability, the teacher creates the ZPD where learning thrives. As the child navigates the task with scaffolding, their private speech becomes a tool for internalizing the strategies and knowledge taught by the adult. Over time, the teacher gradually reduces their support or scaffolding, allowing the child to incorporate the learned skills into their independent ability. Private speech becomes more internalized, guiding their problem solving and self-regulation even without external support. In essence, scaffolding bridges the gap between the child's current ability and their potential within the ZPD, while private speech acts as a bridge builder, internalizing the taught skills and making them the child's own. So if we look at learning and development and how these two theorists differ, Piaget viewed development as sort of the active construction of knowledge preceding learning, emphasizing cognitive readiness. However, research challenges his position, suggesting that learning doesn't necessarily depend on prior cognitive development. In contrast, Vygotsky believed in the active role of learning, considering it a tool that pulls development to higher levels, with social interaction playing a crucial role. Teachers, in Vygotsky's perspective, have a significant impact on cognitive development through methods beyond direct communication, as memorization alone may result in a superficial understanding. Vygotsky's theories on cognitive development offer some valuable insights, but they also have several limitations. One is that they lacked strong empirical support. Research hasn't always confirmed the direct link between specific social interactions and cognitive development. He might have underestimated the role of individual factors like genetics and intrinsic motivation in cognitive development. The ZPD is insightful, but it's challenging to define and measure effectively, especially thinking about determining the precise level of support needed for each child in each situation. His theories were informed by the cultural context of Soviet Russia in the early 20th century, so that obviously may not apply universally to other cultures and social contexts, or, you know, in the modern world in general. He primarily focused on social interaction and cognitive development. He didn't really think about things like emotion, social-emotional learning, and non-cognitive skills. And also, he died young. He died at like 37, so many of his ideas were published posthumously and remain largely unknown until the late 20th century. So this lack of early discussion and refinement leaves some ambiguity. But despite these limitations, his contributions to understanding cognitive development remain significant, primarily that emphasis on social interaction and the ZPD. What does all of this mean for teachers? What are the implications of these two theorists for us in the classroom? So Piaget's theory implies that teachers should be mindful of students' cognitive readiness, ensuring that the material aligns with their developmental stage. So providing opportunities for active knowledge construction, such as hands-on activities and exploration, can support Piagetian principles. On the other hand, Vygotsky's theory suggests that teachers should actively facilitate social interactions and collaborative learning in the classroom, so creating an environment where students engage with peers and teachers in meaningful discussions and problem solving can promote cognitive development. Both theories underscore the importance of understanding individual differences among students and adapting teaching approaches accordingly, recognizing that some benefit more from independent exploration, Piaget, while others thrive in collaborative learning environments, Vygotsky. So balancing individual and social aspects 
aspects and instruction can offer a comprehensive approach to education. That's it for this week. Just a quick summary of what we talked about. We defined development. We talked about those three ideas that are sort of up for debate right now in cognitive development theory. Nature versus nurture, continuous versus discontinuous, and sensitive periods versus learning over time. We talked about brain function, neurons, and synapses, and how the brain prunes things it doesn't use or need and builds connections for things that are sort of exercised. Talked about Piaget and Vygotsky. Piaget is a proponent of active learning and sort of self-development of knowledge where Vygotsky is more on the social interaction side. And then how we can put this in our classrooms, why we need to have sort of opportunities for different types of activities, brain function, kids should be learning and exploring on their own and with their peers. And so that's it. I hope you have a great week. Remember to review the chapter summary and explore the full slide deck. Take the quiz and don't hesitate to ask any questions that you have and I will see you in class.